Hi, I'm Kamu. I'm an entrepreneur and VCOM Honors Investment Management graduate. And I'm Darren, a CFA chart holder and a newsletter writer. And you're listening to the Upstart VC Podcast. A podcast where we talk to entrepreneurs about the things they're building and to investors about the entrepreneurs they're backing. Welcome to another episode of the Upstart VC Podcast. Before we dive into this week's discussion, we'd like to request that you follow us on Substack. By subscribing, you get access to all the research notes we compile of the guests we interview and a whole lot more. And if you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. With that said, today on our show, we have Jesse Randall, who is the CEO and founder of Sweater. He has experience as an entrepreneur and investor and as a business accelerator coach. He has helped founders from everything from investor prep, go-to-market strategy, to financial forecasting, customer acquisitions, and product management. As always, the first segment of our show is an elevator pitch where founders tell us about their business and why we should buy their product. Let's hop in. So Sweater is a venture capital fund that anyone can put money into. Um, in the United States, at least, if you want to put money into a venture fund, at least to date, you have to put in at least a half a million dollars in order to even be uh, qualified to do so. And we're making that limit $500 instead and really trying to open it up to anyone who wants to be part of a venture fund. So we're delivering that experience as a mobile app. So kind of imagine it's sort of like Robinhood, but for venture capital and private companies instead of for public companies like Robinhood is. Um, so we're super excited about what we're bringing to the world. Um, we're closing our own seed round right now and, and really having some fun with it. You have arrived at your destination. Awesome, awesome. Um, and in terms of uh, how you got into becoming so interested in, in, in this mission that you're on, what, what were some of the... The, the catalysts besides just not being able to invest? What were some of the other catalysts that kind of got you interested in um, in pursuing the, the sweater, basically, and what you're doing with sweater? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think at the core of it all, it's that, again, from my, my vantage point in the United States, it's very difficult to grow a scalable kind of company that can impact the whole world without venture financing. Um, you know, angel financing is typically the front end of that, but like to really scale and take something that is global, um, you know, like a, a Spotify or an Airbnb or an Uber or anything like that, that can really truly change the world. You have to have capital that can take the risks associated with trying to build that kind of a vision. And I've loved that from day one. I mean, I consider myself a founder and um, a creator before I was ever an investor. And so, you know, looking at that whole ecosystem and saying, how can I help more founders be able to create their dreams and make them a reality is really where it started for me. And I started that journey personally, uh, probably nine years ago when I got my first job out of grad school at an accelerator program that was kind of like Techstars, if you've heard of Techstars before. Um, you know, Techstars has 50 programs around the world where they put you through a three month, three or four month, very intense process of mentoring and investor prep. And there's demo days at the end. And now that, you know, they have 500 companies a year that go through their programming. 
And I was running not at Techstars, but I was running the equivalent of a Techstars in Arizona. And, um, you know, that experience was really paramount for me because in that two and a half years I was there, I worked with about 150 technology startups um, with every business model you could think of across just about every industry you could touch. And I just fell in love with it. It's so fun to work with founders and help them to really assess what their dreams are and help to articulate and refine them and get them to a point where they really can make an impact on the world. Um, you know, and so I, I think that's really like my foundation where all that came from. And I left that experience and worked with a bunch of companies directly and helped raise money from the company side uh, and get companies ready for that process, uh, which was also eye-opening because it's so hard as a founder to get people to buy into your vision. Um, and, you know, part of the struggle, I don't think that it's necessarily supposed to be easy, you know, because part of the struggle is just the journey. Um, but it's created a lot of passion in me for wanting to help create a better way to do it because I think there's so much innovation that never gets to the market because of the process, the way the process works. So uh, Jesse, I'm just going to hop in here. Um, you had mentioned in, in your, your, your piece now that you identify more as a founder than an investor. So I'm just curious to know that um, what were some of the biggest takeaways from your operational experience that led to you now being a better investor? Well, I think, you know, to be truly good at anything, not just investing, but truly anything, you have to have a very well-developed notion of empathy, right? And empathy is, is the way that I see it, right? Is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand the world as they view it with their respective background, their understanding, their framing of the world, and really being able to see things from their perspective, not your own. And so, you know, whether you're building a company or you're an investor or, you know, you're, you're a psychologist or you're a politician or, you know, whatever, you run a Fortune 500 company, if you don't have empathy, then ultimately you don't understand, you, you'll have a harder time understanding the world that you serve. And so for me, from an operational perspective, I think that that's probably the best skill that I figured out really, really well was being, uh, being able to find empathy. And there are multiple angles inside the sweater um, ecosystem where I feel like empathy plays a very important role. Um, not the least of which, right, is, is the ability to understand founders and what is required for a founder to find uh, success and to raise money and to be able to hire people that believe in what they're doing and really build what's in their head. Um, I've been through that myself on more than one occasion, and it's really ridiculously hard. Um, I've worked alongside other founders who carry the burden of having to raise money and, and build out their vision and carry the burden of really achieving success, right? And be able to help support them. I've been on the investor side, um, trying to assess and understand what it's like to be an investor looking at a company that you don't know anything about and founders that you, that you don't know and assessing an idea that's never been done before and all the skepticism that comes with that because you know, they represent their own investors and so they have a fiscal responsibility to making sure that they make wise investments and it's, it's complicated and it's, it's much more difficult than you think, right? Um, and then I've been the middleman as well, sitting inside an accelerator where I'm trying to bring those groups together and actually help founders get ready and, and also be able to talk to investors who are looking for opportunities and try to create that matchmaking process. So 
for me, you know, I've been in an operational role in several different layers of this ecosystem. And I think that it's unique to be able to step through that and be able to say that I understand kind of how all these sides are suffering from their own perspective and the problems that they have. And, you know, in creating Sweater, how are we helping to alleviate those problems or at least understand the perspective that each group is coming from uh, and to be able to create a better way to do that? Yeah, 100%. And I think that's such a powerful statement statement that you made, um, you know, being empathetic to be able to see through the eyes of the founders as well as the investors is such a really um, important concept. And I, I suppose just building on onto that, right? Um, in your role as an investor, I imagine that there had been times where you've had to use intuition before making a um, an investment decision, right? Um, I'm just curious to know were were there any things, were there any specific things you did to gain confidence um, in backing your own intuition, or were there moments um, where you know there's a scenario where you know you've seen something play out before that you said, okay, you know what, let me back this thing and, and it, it went wrong or it went right. Um, so yeah, what was that process for you to gain confidence in your own intuition and how would you advise founders to do the same? Oh yeah. You ask a great question there. I mean, in- intuition, it's like, that's like the Holy grail of venture investing, right? If intuition were always right, then you know, investing would be easy. But what's what's funny is that intuition is is usually wrong, if you ask me, right? Intuition is very biased. It has, your intuition has limited, um, I guess, information to pull from. You know, like the, the way that I describe intuition is it's kind of like, um, you know, intuition can't pull from an empty well, if that makes sense, right? So if your brain hasn't experienced something before or doesn't have information about a specific sector or opportunity or trend or, you know, whatever else, then it can't operate. It's not going to do good. Right. So if I've never worked with, um, with biotech companies before, which I really haven't, then when I have a biotech opportunity placed in front of me, my intuition is non-existent. I don't have intuition and anything that I try to apply is just going to be forced because I mean, ultimately I, I have nothing to draw from. Right. And so this is the funny thing that I've discovered about investing is that most investors, well, and this, this applies in several different ways, right? But most investors don't have enough context to feed their intuition about what you're doing as a founder. So when you get rejected by an investor, it's usually because they're not comfortable because they don't have enough experience in what you're doing. And so they pass. It doesn't mean that you don't have a, a good idea or that your company isn't successful or that they think that what you're doing is bad. They may say that sometimes, but ultimately they don't have the context to understand what you're doing to feed that intuition, to give them that confidence because that, that investor has a lot riding on them, right? They've raised you know $50 million or whatever from all of their investors who are counting on them to make wise decisions. So they're never gonna do anything that they don't feel comfortable with, right? So with that intuition, it's important to understand uh, what the macro level view looks like. Like if you're a founder, you really need to understand this concept right here. So if you take the step between a seed stage company that's received venture funding and those that same cohort or group of companies that's gonna go and raise a series A, if you took a thousand of those companies and said, okay, we've got a thousand companies here that have raised the seed round, 
Now they're all going to go out and want to raise a series A guaranteed, right? Unless they get acquired, every single one of them is going to go to try, try and raise more money. So if you took those thousand companies and you handed them to any given investor, automatically they're going to pass on 900 of them. They're not even going to take them seriously because they're not inside their investment thesis. They're not in sectors that they understand. They have all these other constraints and they're going to pass. And then of those hundred that they look at, they're only going to be interested in about 30 because their intuition is working for them. And they're saying, oh, there's something here about these 30. I want to dive deeper. So they're going to reject 70 and they're going to take a closer look at 30. And then they're only going to invest in a handful, maybe three or four of them out of those 30, they're actually going to put money into. And that's complicated, right? But that's the thing, like that investor looked at a thousand potential deals and invested in, let's just say five. So they invested in half of a percent of all the deals that they saw. Does that mean that the rest of those deals are bad deals? Hardly, hardly at all. Because when you look at the macro level of those thousand companies, about 500 of them are, have, will actually successfully raise a series A from some institutional investor. So does that mean that that investor was a bad investor for only investing in five of them when 500 of them were actually qualified to raise more money? No, not at all. They're just constrained by their thesis, by their life experience and by what they're comfortable with. So when, when you're a founder, you really shouldn't take it personally when investors pass and they say, I don't, I don't catch the vision because ultimately it's their intuition that doesn't have enough context to be able to catch what you're doing. You are the expert in that situation as a founder. And so you have all the information, right? You, you can see the path forward because your intuition can work because you have every data point. But when you get two minutes to pitch an investor or, or 10 minutes or an hour, you can't relay all of the data points in your head to be able to provide the context that's required for that investor's intuition to work in your favor. So if they don't already understand the world that you're operating in, chances are their intuition is not going to work in your favor. And that's okay. That just means they're not a good fit as an investor. And you need to keep hunting for investors that do understand the world that you operate in. So intuition operates on several different levels. And at the end of the day, um, investors have a lot of constraints and a lot of pressure on them. And you really can't fault them for passing on deals that they don't feel comfortable with because their intuition has to be fed by what they understand. Yeah, just Jesse, that's uh, such a, a really interesting topic and um, it kind of relates to what we had also been speaking about more on a uh, African level. Um, but I think it also applies to the US as well, just in terms of your intuition or what some might also call bias, um, where it specifically relates to um, investing in a group of individuals that are quite familiar to you. And that's kind of where the bias level comes in, right? And that's, I suppose, what you're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, I guess that's kind of related to what you are trying to do in terms of broadening the investor base um, so that the number of investors that can invest into these startups are, are more diverse so that they are not all Stanford educated investors that's investing mm -hmm. in fellow <laughs> Stanford graduates. Um, and I suppose this is obviously, I guess, my bias um, just from reading media and um, or at least how my perception has been, um, what my perception is of the US um, and Silicon Valley 
and how people invest into startups there. Um, but but uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just uh, I thought it was quite interesting and quite cool that you brought up that um, intuition is also kind of related to uh, to some sort of bias, I guess. Um, and yeah, it's interesting to to frame it like that, you know, because I mean, intuition is really just like it's like positively applied bias, right? Like we, we almost always talk about bias in the negative sense. Yeah. Well, you're biased because you see the world like this. And so you cut me out or whatever, right? But there's also positive bias, right? There's bias towards, you know, oh, you went to Stanford? Oh, that's great. Uh, you automatically check five boxes because they're using Stanford as their filtering mechanism. If you made it through Stanford, then obviously you match all these other criteria and I don't need to worry about you as a founder, <laughs> which is actually hugely over-exaggerated. You know, I mean, tons of smart people at Stanford, don't get me wrong, uh, but by no means do you have a guarantee of, of picking a, a winning jockey just because they're from Stanford, right? There's, I'm sure there are plenty of idiots at Stanford. Matter of fact, I'm sure we could go out and create a, a long list of founders who are very much not successful and did very stupid things, um, not because they went to Stanford, but in spite of it, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it's interesting that you you frame it like that. And and yeah, I mean, investors do that all the time. You know, another one that's really common is whether or not you've successfully sold a company before. So if you're a successful founder that has built and uh, had a, a company acquired, you automatically go to the top of the list for most investors. But what's funny about that is that there's really not that big of an advantage investing in successful founders who have actually done it before. That it's not like you have a 100% chance of hitting a home run. I mean, it's a little bit better than just investing in whoever, right? But um, there, there are actually problems in investing with founders who have done it before because they tend to come in a little bit too arrogant. They, they raise money too easily. So they don't push as hard on, on solving a problem that needs to be solved because in their own head, they kind of think they walk on water a little bit because they have done it before. And, you know, so that often leads to many problems. And, and it's not always like that. You know, it's like if a regular founder, if, uh, you know, one out of three founders is going to hit a home run normally, it might be one out of two founders are going to hit a home run who have successfully done it before. But it's not 100%, you know, it's not five out of five. And so it's just funny because we kind of play with these, these biases in our head and these, these filters that may or may not hold a lot of water. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I completely agree. Uh, so, so maybe we can also just chat a little bit about Sweater. Um, if you can maybe just explain a bit more about um, what the process is that you are trying to um, create or what, what you're trying to build to, to make it more accessible for, for investors that don't have, I think you said $500,000 to invest in a startup. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what I can. Um, okay. So Sweater is, is pre-launch, right? We're gonna launch later this year, maybe Q1 next year, um, in terms of being able to open the doors for anyone to put money into our fund. Um, so we're in the process of going through all that. You know, we've you know, we consider ourselves a fintech company first. So, you know, we're a fintech company that happens to be operating a venture fund. Um, and, you know, that, that fund structure allows us to do all these things. And I, I can't provide all the detail there beyond much of saying that, you know, we can take small checks um, and be able to give people that experience. 
but I think it's part of the experience that's important to understand. You know, I'm sure that um, you guys probably watched or, or read about the, the whole GameStop thing and what happened with Robinhood here in the U.S. Um, about six or eight weeks ago. Were you a part of that conversation? Did you follow it at all? Yeah, I, I followed it. I'm not sure about come on. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So you guys are familiar. You know, I mean, it was really irrational behavior, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah. All, all these guys from Reddit coming in and just blowing up the stock, the GameStop Taking stock that the should man. be worthless. Yeah. And, oh, this, and this is the funny thing, right? It's exactly that. It was irrational behavior and they knew that they would eventually lose money on it, but they did it because they knew they were sticking it to the man. And now if we step back and say, now, why, why did they want that, those funds to lose billions of dollars on their shorts, like uh, on shorting GameStop? Why, why did they care? You know, and at the end of the day, you know why they care? It's because they're not being included in those financial opportunities. They can't go put money into a hedge fund, right? They can't make money in that situation. And so they turn around and say, well, screw you. You know, we're going to we're going to beat you at your own game, which they did. It was a huge flex by retail investors um, and it caused a lot of problems. You know, I think there's going to be some blowback from it. But from Sweater's perspective, we look at that and say, well, ultimately, what people really want is they just want equal access to make money like the wealthy do. Is that so hard? There's ultimately, there's two games being played. There's a game that's being played for wealthy folks who can write big checks, half million, $10 million checks to go play in games like this. And then there's the rest of us. And we kind of get the table scraps. We get the leftovers that, that are there after the really sophisticated people have already kind of dug through the opportunity. Um, and I think that that's what really upsets most people. So in the venture world, you're cut out because you can't write a check big enough to get in, right? And it's not your fault or my fault, you know, that we don't have enough money to participate. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's regulations that are preventing that from happening. Um, and so what we're telling people is ultimately, it's kind of like, it's, it's like, um, I don't know, in the United States at least, and, uh, you know, watching the NBA. It's as if everyone has only ever watched the NBA at, on TV at home. They've never been able to go to the stadium. And what we're saying is we want to take you to the stadium. We want to give you courtside seats. And we're going to tell you that you're a part owner in this team that's playing out here. You know, that's the feeling we want to give people. It's like they want equal access for the financial opportunity, but they also want the entertainment. They just want to be involved. They, they want to be included. And so yeah. when we're delivering this as a mobile application, we want it in the palm of your hand, right? So that you, A, can at least participate. You can put money in and it's easy and it's fast, just like Robinhood and, and these other more modern financial uh, you know, apps that are facilitating these opportunities for people. Um, but we also want an entertainment factor. We want you to feel like you've got courtside seats. And so, you know, in the application, we're, we're going to be updating you on everything that's happening with with these companies that's, that you are an investor in, you know, we're going to have launch parties and um, we're going to give you opportunities to provide feedback and tell us what you think about opportunities that are out there and to ultimately, you know, be like you're in the stadium and experiencing that vibe and that feeling um, like any other investor that's on the ground floor. Just wanted to know, Jesse, um, how do you think about, um, you know, the risk misalignment between founders and, and investors, right? Because the way I see it is that, you know, VCs want you to hit the lights out and, and get a gold medal um, at all costs. Whereas for the founder, getting a personal best 
is more important than getting just a single gold medal. Um, and sometimes that means, you know, foregoing gold medals or risking tearing your hamstring. Um, so how do you think about that, that risk misalignment between the two parties? I love the way you just framed that. That is such a perfect way to frame it. You know, a gold medal versus a personal best. And uh, I just love it. Uh, you know, I've said for years that there is misalignment there, you know, because um, w- when you examine the risk profiles from the investor's perspective versus the founder's perspective, the founder is putting everything on the line for at least five to 10 years, maybe longer, right? They're risking their entire career. They're focused on one opportunity. And so they're, they're, they're taking on a ton of risk, right? You look at the investor though, and the investor gets the, you know, they're taking risk as well. They could lose their money, but they have the luxury of spreading their risk across the portfolio of companies. And they're playing a numbers game that they know very well. They know that a third will outright fail and they'll lose other money. They know a third will be mediocre and they know a third will be great winners. Um, And so they have the incentive and the luxury to push every single one of their portfolio companies really hard to get that gold medal, you know, to your point and say, if you don't get a gold medal, then you're not going to be, you're not good enough. Right. When the founder is looking at it saying, well, I could just get a personal best and it's great win for me. And what ultimately happens is that when, when the VCs are pushing the founders to get that gold medal, they often end up, like you said, tearing a hamstring or whatever that prevents them from um, getting on, you know, uh, getting a gold medal or achieving a personal best. And the company ends up failing when they didn't need to because they were being too aggressive and trying to create a market that maybe wasn't there in, in order to satisfy the thirst of the investors. Um, and it's, it's a real problem, if you ask me. And it's kind of funny because I think as founders, we've become so reliant on the capital in order to do what we need to do that sometimes we founders are sort of left powerless to, to play by the rules of the game as the VCs have set it, you know, and as, as they have set the rules for what success means. And I think at times, you know, um, this is where there's a gap in the marketplace for companies that are high growth, but maybe they're high growth to becoming worth, you know, 10 or 20 million instead of 200 million or 2 billion. Um, And they have a real opportunity in front of them and they do need real financing and everyone around the table can win, but they're never going to be a billion dollar company. And there shouldn't be anything wrong with that. Right. And I think that that's kind of some of the lost art of what's happened in the last eight or 10 years in venture, at least in the United States has become this obsession with investing in unicorns and saying, if you can't be a multi-billion dollar company, then you can't be in my portfolio as, as, as a VC. And that's problematic because it, it just continues to skew the game even harder towards the, the end of the spectrum where you have to have unicorns in your portfolio as a fund if you wanna win. And to me, that's becoming, it's, it's too extreme. Venture works great for the first 30 years that it existed before unicorns were ever a thing. Um, And yet in the last seven or eight years, we have this obsession with investing in unicorns and saying, if you can't meet that criterion as a founder, then we don't want you here, or I'm going to invest in you. And then you have to be aiming for that goal or else I don't want you here. 
And I think that it's causing problems in, in the medium term and the long term for what it means to be a founder um, and how to get properly capitalized for attacking the opportunity that you have, whether it's small, medium or gargantuous. Yeah, I mean, with VC, it's like every shot you take is, is a sniper rifle, right? <laughs> so you have to kill him dead in the first shot. Um, so yeah, so I think we're just going to switch gears a little bit and go into some of the learnings that you've had in your, in your, in your career. Um, so for me, just to, you know, just out of interest, you know, when, you, when you're a founder and you're, you're first starting out, you know, you're kind of um, inclined to have people who you're familiar with. So be it friends or family, um, you know, hop onto whatever project that you're, you're trying to build, right? And I remember reading somewhere that they said that, you know, the, the easiest way to transplant cancer into a relationship is to present to pretend that the hard conversation doesn't exist, right? So if you're mm -hmm. building a startup with a with a friend, um, the conversation that you have to have as friends is completely different to the conversation you have to have as co-founders, right? So mm -hmm. I'm just curious to know how how have you um, navigated that either through this venture with your partners or your employees or in the other startups that you've you've built. Yeah, so the question then is specific to inviting friends and family to participate as investors in what you're doing? Uh, not necessarily just investors, but also um, as like a co-founder that has, um, say, you know, if you're going 50-50 with a friend and you're actually like building this operationally. So um, there may be instances where things have to be executed, but, you know, your co-founder hasn't actually executed those things and then raising those issues up um oh, yeah. that sort of thing yeah oh yeah yeah um so talking about that one i mean specifically with co-founders and people that are going to build the company with you it's it's so important to make sure that you set that up right um you know you just i know you just gave an example like you know you split it 50 50 with someone um and that's actually you know not not being thoughtful about that is probably one of the biggest mistakes that founders make is just saying, well, we're both here on day one, so we're both gonna get half the company. Or there's three of us and we're all gonna take a third. Um, it really ends up creating problems because after you start executing, someone is gonna be putting in more time. Someone is gonna be putting in more money. Someone is gonna be taking a bigger risk. Someone is gonna quit their job and the others aren't. Um, you know, Someone brings more expertise from the market uh, that you're attacking than the others do. Um, someone is going to be able to build the product and others can't, you know, like all these things have real tangible value. And that's where conflict ends up coming into the picture um, because you just split it 30, 30, 30, or whatever, one third, one third, one third. And you didn't give any thought to what everyone is actually bringing to the table, both on day one, as well as day 100 and year three, right? Where in the life cycle are you making a sacrifice, adding value, taking risk? Um, and what does that mean for your respective equity ownership? Um, so there's a, a book that I'd highly suggest called The Founder's Dilemma. And it dives super deep into this. I think there's another one called Founder's Pie or something like that, that I haven't read that one, but I have a bunch of people that have, have mentioned it to me. And they both operate around this, this whole notion of how you should divvy up ownership in the early days of a company uh, in order to increase the likelihood that the founding team will stay together and that everyone gets out of it what they need. Um, 
because it is a hard conversation to your point, right? It's what, what's easy is saying, oh, there's two of us, let's split it 50-50. And then there's no conflict. You don't have to worry about it. But then guess when you end up having conflict? It's six months down the road when one of you's quit your job and you've put in $30,000 and the other person hasn't quit their job and put in $5,000. And yet you both have 50% ownership in the company. Is, is that really fair? Um, you know, and you know, ends up who ends up feeling like it's unfair is the person that quit their job and put in all the money and all their time. Um, while the other person is, you know, bringing in a paycheck and kind of watching from the sidelines and sending some emails in the evening, you know, so it's, it's way better to have the hard conversation initially and say upfront, I'm going to put in this much money. I'm going to quit my job in this time frame. I have the expertise to do this, this, and this, and let the other person counter not counter, but to also lay out what they're going to do and then have an honest conversation and say, okay, well, I am obviously going to be doing a lot more of this. So I think it should be a 70, 30 split and have that conversation then, right? Because it's setting expectations. It's, it's giving the ability to um, have a better foundation for the relationship um, in order to find that success and avoid conflict. Because in my opinion, you know, besides money problems, founding team problems is probably the biggest, um, I guess, culprit for killing a good startup because the founders can't hold it together and the volatility of the initial team ends up killing the effort. And I've seen it more times than I can count, right? Um, so it's interesting because you can also build in levers where you can adjust that equity in the future too. So if you guys, if you cut a deal um, and you're 18 months into it and whatever, right? And, and the the landscape has changed between the founders, you can still change the equity ownership. You can move that stuff around. It doesn't have to be fixed in stone. And it's important to have those conversations if things end up being different than, than expected. Um, and ultimately this comes down to money and ownership and opportunity and someone's gonna be upset, right? Uh, if, if you're saying that they should drop from 30% ownership to 10% ownership because they're not contributing like everybody else. But that's just the nature of it, right? And you, you have to be able to set the company up in a way where you can have those tough conversations because ultimately it's for the success of everyone. And anyone that puts their individual, um, I guess, I don't want to say selfishness, but self-interests above the success of the company is probably someone that you don't want on board anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess what you, you're basically saying is... Uh, in the in the process of creating a, a business with your friends, you would need to kind of put your friendship behind a uh, a contract in a way, almost, um, and have those hard not necessarily behind the contract, but put it to the side when you have hard conversations and, and try and be upfront about it and speak about it quite early in the in the process of starting a business together. Um, Yes, 100%. Yeah, before you ever start, right, you, you should have those conversations. Even if all it is, is we're going to revisit this in 60 days and see where we're at, right? Yeah. And just not even divvying up, not, not setting an expectation, you know? Um, mm. So yeah, yeah, definitely worth, worth the time. And any pain you might perceive or awkwardness is 100% worth it. Yeah, and I guess I suppose the, the benefit of, of starting a business with friends besides the potential awkwardness if you don't have those hard conversations at the beginning is the benefit of it is um, working with individuals that you know would have the same vision for what you, you're starting. Um, 
So yeah. Yes, and 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 frankly, I mean, the the pre-existing relationship can help you get through some really hard times. Mm. You know, if you contrast starting a business with friends with starting business a business with two people that you haven't spent much time with, I would lean towards friends as long as they have the right skill sets, yeah. because you're much more likely to rely on each other and trust each other and work hard for each other and be far less likely to stab each other in the back or do something stupid. Um, it depends, you know, there's a lot of elements there, but uh, in many ways I would say it is, it's good to start with friends. I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it, but you do need to have those honest conversations because if you got that one friend that brings no skills, no capital, no sacrifice to the table, they shouldn't be getting the same amount as everybody else. And they should be mature enough to understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jesse, I'm just cognizant of our time. Um, so maybe if we can just close off with the last question that we ask all of our guests is, if you had to find $100,000 on the side of the road, um, in what sector, geography, or even company would you invest that $100,000 as an investor? Or alternatively, what would you spend that $100,000 on um, as you build out Sweater, um, and why? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, great question. Well, I'll give the brief answer, which is that's more complicated than it sounds. But I don't think I would pick a specific sector. I love fintech. I think fintech is at the very beginning of its life cycle and will continue to change the world. But $100,000 won't make a dent because fintech requires enormous amounts of capital to do it well. Um, I would be picking on a jockey and not necessarily the idea. I think that good companies can be built anywhere in the world opportunities uh, for growth vary drastically depending on where you're at. But I do believe that you can build a company and, and specifically a technology company anywhere in the world. Um, so if I had $100,000 though, um, this is what I would do with it. I would save all of it for building the product and building a true MVP that you can generate revenue from. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. 